Please pray with me. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts to your mercy. And I pray that where we are frightened to approach you, we would learn that your arms are open to us. Amen. I'm not planning on preaching from Psalm 84, but it's hard to let one of my favorite verses go unnoticed. In Psalm 84, where it says, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a place. The sparrow in the Bible is the worthless bird. You remember the words of Jesus, are not two sold for a penny? And the swallow is the exhausted bird because it eats while flying on the wing. The psalmist's point is that if you feel worthless and if you're exhausted, there is a home for you in the house of God. It's beautiful. I actually want to turn, though, to the gospel. But in order to do so, I want to read you a couple of verses out of Hebrews 4, verses that are familiar to you. The writer to the Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is a two-edged sword. Many have offered explanations for what these two individual edges of the sword that is the word of God are. Early in the church's history, Tertullian, one of the great theologians of the second and third century, and Augustine, one of the great theologians of the fourth and fifth century, both said that the two edges of the sword that is God's word are the Old and the New Testaments, each one cutting in its own way. Hervaeus, a sixth century saint that you've probably never heard of, a blind Celtic saint, the son of a Welsh bard, Hervaeus said that the two edges were God's temporal and his eternal truth. You jump forward years later, and we find Luther saying that the two edges, one edge purifies the heart, the other edge purifies the body. These definitions aren't in contradiction with one another. They're ways of seeing the glory of this passage. One of my favorite comes from a man named Philip Hughes. He's a global Anglican theologian. I say global because he was born in Australia, raised in South Africa, ordained in England, and then ended up serving in America. Truly, he touched many continents. And Philip Hughes, who died in 1990 as a professor at Trinity, many of y'all know that school in Ambridge. Philip Hughes said that the two edges are the edge that convicts and judges and the edge that saves and brings mercy. I love that, that when we approach the word of God, there is an edge that cuts, that convicts, that judges, and an edge that saves and brings mercy. This parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 is a perfect example of that. In this parable, we see both edges on full display. You see the edge that convicts and judges in the heart of the Pharisee. A heart that is animated by contempt for others and trust in oneself. A heart that could pray, I thank you 
that I'm not like other people. If we're honest, if we listen to this parable honestly, this is an edge that cuts all of us, that cuts in conviction, that cuts in judgment. After all, who among us has not looked at somebody else with contempt? Who among us has not looked at somebody else and said, I am glad I am not like them? Whether it's the person's politics, whether it's their behavior, whether it's the way they keep their home, whether it's how they use their money or how much money they have, whether it's the way that they gossip, whether it's the way their church acts, who among us at times has not said, at least in our hearts, I'm better than that one. At least I'm not like that person. This edge that is the Pharisee's heart should convict and cut us all. We've each likely said this, or at least felt it. Perhaps not been so bold as this Pharisee to actually pray it out loud audaciously before God, but in our hearts looked at others and said, that person is, and you fill in the blank. They're superficial. They're stupid. They've got nothing to offer. I'm so glad I'm not like them. It's easy, even in the church, to look at others and go, we are so much better off than they are theologically. We care about so much deeper substance than they do. They're just all about the show and the gimmicks. It's easy to have this heart of contempt, to think that we are better than others. This parable cuts, and it cuts for conviction. Usually when we feel this response, we justify it, right? But they're sinful. But they're heretical. They're wrong. Do you see how lazy they are? Do you see the way they use their money? We justify our responses. And amazingly, in those justifications, we sound just like this Pharisee, do we not? You see that guy? Unjust. He's an extortioner. He's sexually unfaithful. We sound just like him in these justifications. The irony of this is that the tax collector actually was that great of a sinner. The Pharisee wasn't wrong about the tax collector's character. He was a traitor to his people. He was unjust with money. The irony of this is that the Pharisee was actually probably that righteous. They were better than you and me in terms of prayer and fasting and knowledge of the word of God. They tithed not only on their income, but on their purchases. Just in case the person who produced that good didn't tithe, when I purchase it, I'm going to tithe on that purchase too. So next time you go to the grocery store, don't just tithe on your income, but please bring a tenth of all that you purchased to the church. This is how meticulous they were. The irony is that the Pharisee wasn't actually wrong. The tax collector was that bad, and he was that meticulous in his righteousness. But being correct in his assessment didn't justify his contempt. It didn't justify the attitude of his heart. We justify our responses because we actually say, but Stephen, 
aren't we supposed to care about and proclaim the truth? Aren't we supposed to weed sin out? Isn't it right to acknowledge and to point out sin in places, to actually point out where heresy occurs or where people care about things that are ugly or evil and don't matter? We justify our responses. We are supposed to do those things. But you know what Jesus never actually says when he talks about church discipline? You know what he never actually says when he talks about our calling to believe and proclaim and to teach the truth? He never says do it with an attitude of superiority. He never says do it with contempt for the people who don't know it yet. He never says look down at them while you proclaim the truth and thank God that you are better off than they are. It's easy especially when we're fighting for things that matter, things like truth, the integrity of the church, it's easy to slip into this sort of contempt, to trust in ourselves, to trust in ourselves that we are on the right side because of what we believe and because of how we act. Contempt and self-justification are two sides of the same coin. Everyone who's ever thought about a playground bully knows this, that we look down at others in order to prop ourselves up. Contempt and self-justification are two sides of the same coin. When we look at someone and we scorn them for how they live or what they believe, we're doing so in an attempt to flatter ourselves, to justify ourselves to promote ourselves for having it all right. That's why Jesus puts the two together in this parable, trusting in themselves and showing contempt for others. They go together. Those who truly know the depths of their own need for mercy have an awfully hard time showing contempt for others. Because when you realize how deep the need is in your own heart, it becomes a lot more difficult to point the finger at somebody else's failings. People who've given up hope that they could ever justify themselves tend to have more compassion with others who are in the same boat. In all this, please don't hear me saying that it doesn't actually matter how we live. Please don't hear me saying that it doesn't actually matter what we believe. Over and over and over again, whether to his disciples, to the crowds around them, to the Pharisees, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that it matters deeply what we believe. It matters deeply how we live. But the point that we hear in this parable is that living rightly and believing the right things cannot make us right with God. Hear that again. Living rightly and believing the right things cannot make us right with God. Every one of us likely knows very upright people who are very far from God. And James says that even the demons believe and shudder. Proper behavior and perfect belief cannot make us right with God. They matter deeply but they can't fix the actual problem. Only the mercy of God can do that. 
Only the mercy of God can fix what's actually wrong with us. And that, of course, is the other side of this two-edged sword in this parable. The first, the side that convicts and judges and cuts in conviction, is this revealing of the heart of contempt and self-justification that so easily points the finger and accuses because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But the other side, the cut of mercy, the cut of salvation, is what we see in this tax collector. The cut that says very simply to you that no matter the depths of your need, if you throw yourself on the mercy of God, he will receive you. That's a beautiful cut, a cut for salvation. That those who are justified, that those who are pleasing to God are not those who've gotten everything buttoned up. Those who are justified, those who are pleasing to God are those who simply despair of themselves, who say, I can't do it, and who open their arms wide and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy. This is something that y'all know, and y'all have heard. The assurance in this parable is deep. My guess is, though, that y'all, like me, need to be brought back to this assurance time and time and time again. I've been wrestling with this parable for about a month. I knew it was coming up in the lectionary, and it's been on my mind. And I've been wrestling hard with it. Not to understand it, it's not that complicated. I haven't been even wrestling with the part about contempt, because honestly, I know my own propensity to look at others with contempt and think I'm better than they are. I confess it when it's revealed, and then it gets revealed again, and I confess it again. I don't want to be that way, and so I keep confessing and repenting the tendency to look down at others. That's not been the hard wrestling, because that part's just sort of beaten into the rhythm of my soul at this point. The hard wrestling has been to believe the part about the tax collector, to actually believe it. That's been my wrestling, this second part. Here's what I mean. When I'm face to face with my own failure, when I'm face to face with my own sin, when I'm face to face with the fact that I am not who I want to be, my instinctive response is, Stephen, get your act together. Try harder. Set the alarm clock earlier. Read the Bible longer. Beat yourself a little harder. That's the instinctive response of my soul. It's the instinctive response that has underneath of it this deep belief that I need to earn God's love. This deep belief that undergirds my response to my own failures, that I need to work harder to prove that I am worth something. This longing to earn his favor, longing to earn his favor in an attempt at self-justification. So I can say yet again, look how good Stephen is because he succeeded in earning God's love. That's my instinctive response to finding out that I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Coming to terms with the fact that he's actually already delighted in me is difficult. Coming to terms with the fact that he is genuinely pleased 
overflowing with joy when his children simply come to him and say, I can't do it. Have mercy on me. This is difficult to believe. And as I wrestled with this parable, this is the part that I was wrestling with, and it's the part that I want to offer to you all. That the Lord actually delights when his children come to him and say, I've tried and tried and tried, and I've not managed to fix the problem. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. That his delight is in those moments to look at the sons and daughters he has created and say, amen, you finally get it. You finally get it. It's hard to come to terms with this because the desire in all of us to justify ourselves runs so strong. We want to take credit for things. We want to earn his favor. But he doesn't want us to earn it. It doesn't work anyways. As I thought about this sermon, I thought about that song, the beautiful song that says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. It doesn't work. You can't hang around long enough and fix things for yourself and then show up to God and say, I've cleaned myself up. It does not work that way. His delight is to actually show you mercy. And we shrink back and say, but not for this, but not for this. But he says to you, my mercy has no bounds. My mercy has no bounds. Next time you feel yourself wrestling with a particular thing and saying, but not for this. See the picture of this tax collector beating his breast far off, unwilling to lift his eyes even to heaven, simply crying out, have mercy, have mercy. And hear Jesus saying, he went home justified. He was right with God. That this is all that it takes. We worry that this mercy may not be enough. That this mercy might have a limit. That there might be a final day where we say, but, but yet again. And the Lord says, my mercy has no boundaries. Y'all have probably heard me say one of my favorite quotes of all time from the 14th century. When all, all the wickedness that the world may do or think is no more to the mercy of God than a live coal dropped in the sea. It's beautiful. All the wickedness that the world could do or think is no more to the mercy of God than a live coal dropped in the sea. There are no boundaries. There are no boundaries for you there are no boundaries for me. There is no day when you wake up and you say, I've sealed my fate. I've taken one step too far. If you will simply turn and say, Lord, have mercy, have mercy. He delights when his children finally come to terms with reality, that we are creatures who cannot fix ourselves. He delights when we return to the one who can heal us, the creator. And when we throw open our arms and say, Lord, I need your healing. I need your mercy. In that moment, he offers his spirit. In that moment, he cleanses us anew. In that moment, he begins to do what we could never do for ourselves, which is to transform us from the heart outwards. 
He can do what we cannot do. So this morning, if you're struggling with who you are, if the memory of all the ways that you've gone astray over the last week is still heavy on your soul, even if this morning what's been revealed or reminded to you is all the places and times that you look on others with contempt and think that you're better than them, if that's where you are this morning, don't despair. Just come before the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy. Open your hands to him in the confession. Open your hands to him at his table and come before him and say simply, Lord, I can't do it. Have mercy on me yet again. Amen.